It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 624 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. I'm honored to be joined by my guest today on Accelerate. Joining me on the show is Carlos Hidalgo. Carlos is the founder and CEO of Vism CX and author of the book titled Driving Demand, Transforming B2B Marketing to Meet the Needs of the Modern Buyer. And that's what we're really going to focus on today is the needs of the modern buyer. And in our discussion, we're going to dive into the topic of how the buyer's experience, I mean, how they experience your, your sales process, right? How they experience their buying process can really be the decisive factor in their decision-making about which vendor to go with. And so we'll explore why you need to design the customer experience based on what the buyers expect from you. And, you know, you have to know in advance, survey them, what your customers want, and make sure you deliver on that expectation. So it's one of many things we're going to talk about today. If you'd like to see show notes for this episode, go to andypaul.com forward slash 624. Now, for my friends out there that, that may be considering new job opportunities, just a word for you. I've, I've been mentoring and training sales professionals for years now. And one of the most important elements to career success is aligning yourself with a company that develops employees, values their customers, and has a portfolio of products that can compete with anyone in the market. And that's why if you're a top performer in your current role and you're looking for a fresh challenge to take your career to the next level, then CenturyLink should be at the top of your list. With its recent acquisition of Level 3, the new CenturyLink is a world leader in providing cloud, security, real-time communications, hybrid IT, and managed services. So if you want the excitement, challenge, and rewards that come from selling industry-leading services to the enterprise, then visit CenturyLink.com forward slash accelerate and join their talent community. And once you join, a member of their team will reach out and connect and see if a career at CenturyLink is the right step for you. Okay, before I talk with Carlos, let me remind you that if you haven't already signed up to receive my periodic emails, hey, then I think you're missing out. So I save some of my best advice, my best words of wisdom about sales, leadership, marketing, relationships, and character for my subscribers. So make sure you visit andypaul.com right now to subscribe. All right, let's get to it. Carlos, welcome to Accelerate. Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. So I've got a standard question I open up the show with for all my guests. And this is, question is, in your mind, what's the single biggest challenge facing sales reps today? I think the biggest challenge is that the, especially for seasoned reps, uh, reps with any kind of years under their belt, is just understanding that the way they used to sell is not applicable anymore. We deal with such an informed, sophisticated, complex B2B buyer who's buying in a consensus fashion, who's taking longer to engage with vendors, whether it's giving their name on a web form or calling up and talking to a rep. Uh, They already have as much information that we could give them via their smartphones if uh, they do mobile search, which we know that happens Mm -hmm. regularly. And so where it used to be the rep was the default or the de facto gatekeeper of the information and the relationship, the buyers have now ripped that out of their hands And so add to that because of if you want to subscribe to the 57% that CEB (laughs) talked about, now you have marketing inserting themselves in a way that is an absolute must. And so this idea that 
sales used to be marketing's customer has shifted. And so really the the life of a or the world of a B2B salesperson has been rocked and just changed dramatically because we have a very disruptive buyer mm-hmm. and who's well informed, well equipped. And I know in my experience in selling, many times once you when your first engagement with a buyer, you're already shortlisted. And that's that's a fundamental change, and it's a big challenge for sales organizations and, and even individual reps to adapt to. Yeah, well, I think that's a really good point to bring up because, um, yeah, there's a uh, gosh, I forget the gentleman's name, a professor at Ohio State University. It's done research into uh, this whole thing about how how decisions are made. And to mm-hmm. your point exactly, he says there's really two stages. He called them a a choice and a decision. I, I think it works better the other way, the decision and choice. But what he says is, first of all, you know, companies make that, that go-no-go decision, right? Are we going to do this or not? Right. And then they make a decision who they're going to do it with. And oftentimes when they get to that point of who they're going to do it with, to your point, they've narrowed it down. Right? Yes. They've done their research. They've, they've already eliminated a bunch of the competition. So that, that second decision point they make, or the choice, as I like to call it, yeah, it could just be between two vendors at that point. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you never know. Whether you're no. ever ever considered or not, right? They keep it. Oftentimes, they keep it very, very close to the vest. So, just briefly, because I don't want to get down to the weeds on the fifty-seven percent. But what's your thought on that? I mean, do you, do you think it's true? And and I, my point is, regardless of whether it's true, does does it really matter? Um, I, I think it only matters in the role of how does it how does it impact how we work and how we perform our jobs on a daily basis. So, if if I know I'm going into a well informed buyer, or if I know that I'm going into a discussion where this individual, and again, I don't care if it's ten percent, fifty seven percent, or seventy percent, but there's already an understanding of what they're trying to solve for. My ability, my my work, and my discussion changes to say, let's talk about what you're trying to solve for, and then perhaps let me help you think about it in a broader context. Mm-hmm. My experience with buyers, oftentimes, they don't always understand the depth and breadth. And it, if you're talking to, if the initial conversation is with an individual, sometimes that's even just helping them understand how other people in the organization or on the buying committee may be thinking about the problem, which quite often is not aligned to how that individual is because of the roles in which they serve in the organization. Right. Or just the interpersonal dynamics in that sort of buying committee, quote unquote, buying yes. committee, right? Because uh, I think Discover Org uh, you know, did research recently. They published uh, with Steve Martin had put together the the business professor Steve Martin, not the comedian. Right. And and um, yeah, the, one of the interesting findings was that even within these buying committees, that as you might expect, is that you know personalities intervene, and there's oftentimes you know somebody that becomes the the dominant personality who tends to have sort of outsized influence over what the committee ultimately decides. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You're 100% right. Yeah. I thought that was very interesting. So, so you, you have a certain amount of focus in your work on the customer experience. And this is, this is a term people are hearing more and more. And there's a tendency, I think, when people first hear to sort of think about, well, the customer experience with the product. But we're really talking about the customer experience in their decision-making process, in their buying process. Yeah, I think the customer experience starts long, to what you just said, starts long before they become a customer. Mm-hmm. 
it, it's it even starts before I start to buy something. I may be engaging with your brand uh, long before there's any kind of trigger event that pushes me into a purchase process. I often hear when I talk to uh, potential customers or prospects, hey, I've read your stuff. I saw you speak. I've been on your website. Uh, I, I didn't have visibility into that other than an IP address, perhaps. But mm-hmm. they've, been enga- they've been engaging with the brand of Vism CX um, in a way. And then something happens and they say, hey, it's time to purchase something. And so for me, customer experience is really that full arc of what a customer does from brand engagement all the way through to customer advocacy. As it relates to buying, we better provide a really good buying experience or else we are going to lose the opportunity to provide them a customer experience. But it seems like a, a frame of mind or a mindset that we don't we don't really hear much about in sales, right? We'd hear about more, as you talk about, sort of the marketing engagement side, right? But it's now just sort of starting to filter down to sales. People think, well, yeah, the customer's experience of dealing with our sales team mm-hmm. it has an impact on their ultimate decision. I mean, it's not just uh, you know this is not just fluff, and it's not just how they're engaging with our content. It's yeah, what what do they feel about the experience of working with the sales team? Yeah, and I think sales plays such a huge role. And I think even before we get to that level, it's incumbent upon organizations. And what I, what I talk about all the time is how do we enable, equip, and empower our uh, people in the organization, whether they're sales, whether they're marketing, customer support, customer service, uh, professional services and delivery, how do we enable, equip, and empower those people to deliver the type of experience that our customers are demanding? And when we think about it strictly, let's just take strictly the sales perspective, how many times do we get frustrated when we're talking to a salesperson? Um, let's just assume they're on the short list and we're now trying to negotiate exactly what we want. And these poor salespeople are stuck in such a, a finite uh, or given such finite limitations of what they're able to do on behalf of the customer. Well, if we're training them the right way and equipping them with the right tools, we then need to empower them to say, I'm going to do what's best for the customer. And both short term and long term, that's going to benefit the organization. There's nothing worse than talking to a sales rep and asking a question and getting, you know, let me go talk to my management Mm. and see if we can do that. And then three days pass and you're sitting there saying, well, I'm trying to make a purchase and you're still in the back room, so to speak, trying to convince your management that this should be done or trying to get some kind of approval. Let's just empower our salespeople to do what's right. Yeah. So a couple of questions about customer experience and sales for you. I'm sure that more come up, but... But one is, it seems to me that there's this disconnect between sales and the customer in terms of really understanding what the customer is trying to accomplish in their in the buying process itself. I mean, I remember this great quote I read from uh, Jeff Colvin, who said that, you know, basically what customers are trying to do, what buyers are trying to do today is they see the ability to make good decisions quickly as a strategic advantage. Mm-hmm. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to quickly gather the information they need to make a good decision with the least investment of time and effort possible. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I don't think anybody really loves the entire B2B buying process, no matter what we're purchasing. <laughs> right. And they're not and elongating it just for the heck of it. I mean, right. And so and I think, I think sales, what I say is I think sales is just not mindful enough. And I, I talk about this almost every presentation I give to sales teams. This is what your buyer setting out to achieve. And so is your process 
aligned with that. And it, it, it like never occurs to them. No, it doesn't because they're so focused on, well, I've got to, I've got to get the next order. I've got to, I've got to close the next deal where literally if you would take the time up front to truly listen in and ask the buyer, what is your objective here? I was given a workshop several weeks ago in Boston where we talked about the buying objective. Mm-hmm. Somebody raised their hand and they said, what does that mean? And I said, well, it's really the objective of what your prospective customer or even current customer is trying to achieve with this purchase and the objective that they're trying to achieve as they purchase. What are they solving for? What are they trying to get to? So while so many salespeople lead with, well, my solution does this, why don't we back up and say, let me hear what challenges, pain points, and issues you have. How are you trying to address them? And then let me determine if I can even help you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may have come to our company thinking I can help you, when in reality, my service or solution may not be of help to you. So let me help you either quickly uh, disqualify myself or say, yes, we can help you. Now, here are some ways you should think about that. If you can have that discussion, and what I hear from reps is, well, that's just going to elongate the sales cycle. Well, it's not a sales cycle. It's a buy cycle. (laughs) And it doesn't elongate it because now the customer is going to trust you and really open the door to dialogue. And that deal will go faster. And stats prove that from a deal velocity perspective, that when you're taking a buyer-centric approach to, to sales, those deals close faster. And oftentimes, price becomes a non-factor. Yeah, I mean, get back to, I just had Stephen M.R. Covey on the show a couple weeks ago, and well, a couple weeks before we rec- you and I recorded this. And we talked about his this great book, The Speed of Trust, which is just as you, you talked about is, you know, if you take the, if you can build the trust, then speed's going to go up and your cost of getting the, the job, whatever job you're in, if it's sales is going to go down. Um, right. So yeah, you're, what you're going to see is, you know, faster, shorter, uh, less expensive buying cycles. If you can, as you said, take that buyer centric approach and build the trust. Well, I, so a question about customer experience that sort of closed the loop that I wonder if you've been getting any feedback about is, is increasingly as we move to the inside sales model and sales, you know, we sort of migrated to these specialized sales roles that start with sort of our least experienced sellers reaching out, trying to set up meetings and appointments and demos and so on. And I'm wondering how does that how does that really apply? I've never seen any research how customers really view this sort of two stepped approach uh, to people engaging with them because. Yeah, if we all go to an auto dealership and we deal with the sales rep and they said, well, just a second, uh, now I'm going to hand you over to our sales manager. <laughs> right? We all hate that. Right. So um, I wonder how the business customers are receiving you know, this, this model we're using in sales. Well, I, first of all, I admire the fact that you still go to a car lot. Well, um, I was just giving an example. I, people would understand. Sure. <laughs> no, I, I think I think there there's. I don't think the function, the SDR function, is the issue, because what I have seen for organizations that say we don't want that because we want that, the field rep is when you take an automated lead, and this is assuming marketing automation and and all mm-hmm. the technologies there, and then you say I'm going to take a truly automated lead, even even if they've gone through a series of behaviors and pass it on to a rep, there still has to be a level of qualification. And so it begs the question, do I want to pay a do do I want my high pay highly paid field sales reps to be doing that qualification? So what I think it really comes down to is how are we training our SDRs? And you are exactly right, Andy, in that so many of these SDRs are trained to just book the appointment. 
versus saying, why don't we take the first step to dive a little bit deeper into the behavior, which is on my screen. I can see everything you've done mm-hmm. through the integration of technologies. And why don't I just validate um, who you are, what you're trying to accomplish, what you're trying to do. I'm not selling at that point. I'm truly just trying to say, look, everything you've done has been unless we're we're attending in a a live conference but by and large everything you've done has been digital i just wanted to place a call to find out uh, are there any more questions i can answer um and and start to try to get an understanding of how soon are you looking to purchase um what are you trying to do again all of those questions we should be asking to build trust and then if they're giving all the right signals the sdr's role is to say hey look i appreciate your time um with your permission i'd like to connect you with one of our field sales and then instead of just handing it off and getting on a, another conversation with somebody you've never talked to Why isn't the SDR on that first call introducing the field rep to the customer, recapping the conversation and saying, what I I believe we had discussed was this, is that accurate? And then that is a very warm handoff and a very warm introduction. Mm -hmm. The the SDR programs that, that don't work is, I'm just here to make an appointment, and by God, you downloaded three white papers and filled out three web forms, I'm not going to let you off the phone until you commit to an appointment. Well, that's, you, that's you, download, really, you downloaded one. <laughs> well, exactly. In many cases, right? right? Yeah, we glanced across the bar and now let's get married. Right. So, um, yeah, that that is where I have seen it fall apart. So I really think the the struggle is how are we training our SDRs and what purpose do we have them trying to fulfill in our organizations? Well, yeah, and I think that it's this is a sort of critical issue when we talk about customer experience. And the reason I brought it up is that that you know these are our most junior people, yes, and, and yet they're in in least experience. They're new, and there's that's not their fault, right? They're just they're new. I was new at one point. I mean, I I was sort of thrown into the deep end. I had to go you know deal with the customers and so on. That I probably had no idea what I was doing initially, but but. They're in roles that what average tenure is, you know, barely over a year now, right? For for most SDR roles, and so I think a lot of companies are saying, well, if they're not going to stick around long, why why am I going to invest much in them? As opposed to you know, when you get in this sort of vicious cycle, as opposed to saying, yeah, this is this is a role that's important. You know, this is not just this is not just a throwaway role, which is unfortunately it seems to be the way it's treated in too many cases. It's treated that way, and I think rather than saying, well, why would we invest in them? It's shouldn't we invest in another stage of the customer experience? Mm-hmm. And then the, the other thing I see is, well, we use our SDR roles to train for field sales roles, which is such a fallacy. I know people who are absolutely amazing on the telephone. But when it comes to presenting in person and sitting in, in, in a committee meeting in front of people, they wilt. And right. that's not, a, that's not a, a, a knock on them. That's just how they're wired. And there's some people that should be looked at as saying, you are going to be the best SDR, the best inside salesperson, and there may not be an opportunity for field sales. And they may not want that. But we have this idea of, well, we're using our SDRs to train for the field sales. And I've always rejected that as a, as a complete fallacy. Well, and also, I mean, I've talked with sales leaders and SaaS companies that say, yeah, you know, they're either going up or they're out, right? Right. And there is no role for a tenured SDR, someone with, you know, five, ten years experience that is just really good at it, and that's what they're happy to do. 
Right. And, and I don't understand that either. If I have somebody who's very satisfied, loves their work, uh, wants to do this every day, gets up every day and knocks it out of the park, why do they have to move up? Move up? Keep them in the role that's going to be most satisfying to them and in so doing is going to be better for the company and surely a whole lot better for our customers. You would think so. Well, I think there's I think there's ageism at work, quite frankly, right? I think that it's maybe not in so subtle. <laughs> I was about to say subtle, and then I was thinking, well, maybe it's not so subtle after all, which is this this belief that somehow the only person who can do an SDR role is someone between the ages of you know twenty two and twenty five. Yeah. No, I think you. I think you. You could be right, and and some of the best uh, inside salespeople that I have spoken to are far beyond that. And again, they are people who just really enjoy what they get to do on a day to day basis. And so, why would we take that away? Why Why don't we uh, enable that more and give them more opportunity to continue to do the job that they love and they're really, really good at, and would continue to get even better at, right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, yeah, it's 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 such a we seem to have such a hard time with this, this equation, right? At least in, in SaaS business, which is we have fundamentally low close rates, mm-hmm. you know, from qualified opportunities to close. So we're playing a numbers game and you have to get away from the numbers game. And the only way to do that is, is through, we're going to have a better customer experience in part as part of it. Um, and why not get people who are better at that job by, through experience, not just, you know, day one better, but people that can have the patience, give somebody two to three years to mature and really get mastered, master that job. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, uh, what do they say? 2000 hours to become an expert. No, 10,000. So, so, okay, 10,000. So uh, it shows you, how, shows you how well I know that's that. But 10,000 hours, so we think about that. So we're going to take somebody who's still in the nascent, nascent stages of building up that uh, expertise and then we're going to say, okay, you're done. Thanks for playing. And now we're going to move you into something that's far more difficult than being on the phone. Yeah. What do you think about it? I mean, there's roughly 2,000 work hours in a year. So right. if somebody's an SDR and they're pretty much on the phone most of the day, let's say, yeah, five years may be the point to which they really get good at what they're doing. That's right. That's right. And they may really find that they enjoy it and they don't want to do anything else. And that is okay. Yeah. Well, and take it back to what we were talking about before, the customer experience gets so much better for the customer. Absolutely, it does. It, it absolutely does. And again, I think when we take sales out of the equation, and you alluded to this, is that, hey, you know, so many times we reduce it down to marketing. It's not. It's the full spectrum of what a customer is engaging with at every touch point. And if we don't understand that, we are, we are really putting ourselves in a bad, bad position with our customers. Well, you talk about the concept of des- designing a great customer experience. So what, what's it mean to design a customer experience? Um, I, I think first and foremost, it's determining what experience are your customers expecting. Uh, I met with one, uh, actually an agency back in the in the uh, early spring, and we were spending the day together. We, of course, you had whiteboards, and we were walking through, and halfway through, the CEO said, <laughs> I hate to say this, but we've been targeting the wrong audience because we can't deliver. She said, I, I, I've had this whole idea that we're going to deliver something to this audience, but now I'm realizing we can't deliver that. We have to change who we're targeting because we can meet the needs of that target market. And I thought I, I just so appreciated the honesty there. And so when we design, we have to first say, uh, what is the experience our customer wants? 
And then can we deliver that based on what we know our brand value and brand promises? If, if we are, and so if we can't, we are then faced with either we change our target audience or we change who we stand for as a brand and our brand mission and our brand promise. If we're going to change that, and, and oftentimes what I'm seeing in organizations, even if the executives have defined the brand promise, the rest of the employees don't know that. It's not part of their DNA. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. how can you expect a frontline salesperson or a frontline marketer or a frontline customer support rep to deliver that experience if they don't understand the experience they're supposed to deliver? Well, <laughs> so which is easier? Before I get to some, some points you just raised, which is easier? So, you know, sort of refocusing who you're targeting or, you know, changing what you deliver? I think to change who you are fundamentally as an organization is, is tough sledding. Yeah. I'm not saying it can't be done. Um, there's been plenty of, of companies that have reinvented themselves, but it, it is tough sledding. Um, to go after a new market may be a little bit easier. You have to digest some things and you have to adapt. But if you don't really understand and talk to your customers and say, from from your perspective, not our perspective, but from your perspective, when you deal with us as a company at every touch point, what is the experience you expect? What is the experience you desire? What is the experience that's going to allow you and enable you and give you the confidence to stay with us as your vendor and partner. If we don't understand that, forget any type of solution, any type of content, any kind of sales enablement. It just, it's not going to be integrated and it's going to, the customer is going to sniff that out a mile away. So we have to start there and then determine, can we deliver that? If we can't, then how do we enable ourselves or how do we either acquire that or just make add that to who we are as an organization. If you determine you can't, well, then you have to make a determination that we probably have to go after a new market segment. Well, and you raised the key point up front, which is one that seems to be a mystery to a lot of companies these days, especially as we get, again, more oriented toward inside sales, is you actually have to go out in the field and talk with your customers. Uh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Not, not, just, not hear, just get on the phone. Go, go travel. Well, we do. We do NPS studies. Okay, well, that's great. Um, It still doesn't (laughs) give you the voice of the customer. And you're right. You do have to sit down face-to-face across the table from your customers and ask them those questions. And you better be prepared sometimes to hear that your baby's ugly. Right. Without being defensive. Yeah. No, good luck in in many cases on that. But it's it's absolutely what has to be done. And, yeah, I was working at a company that was uh, a client that – very large. And there was B two B of a high high volume transaction, relatively low price point. You know, sort of average like hundred dollar type price point. Uh, but they would have a large number of users within any one corporation. And yeah, their single largest customer. They had no one out there talking to them face to face. They didn't even know who the real decision maker was in the organization. So then it's like, well, how do how okay? How can we figure out how we can do better and how we can make them happier and have a better experience with us? If we don't know who's the one that's, you know, pulling the lever. Yeah, and it is amazing to me, the lack of insight we have into our customers. I was sharing with a colleague last week that I was part of a selection process for a former client, and one of the uh, vendors who was presenting is part of this larger, one of the largest technology companies in the world. And my client spent about $20 million a year with the larger entity. Well, the sales reps started off and talking, and and when they mentioned, hey, we already spent 
$20 million a year with you, his response was, oh, I didn't even know you were a customer. <laughs> at that moment, I, 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 I know for a fact, because they were my client and we talked about it after, at that moment, he lost the entire committee. They oh, were yeah. done. They were done. It was, it, was, it, was, it was 90 seconds into the pitch, and we, we had about an hour and a half scheduled. And honestly, I felt like I should have just gone up, put my arm around him and said, we're done. Yeah. You, you could just see it. Everybody just kind of looked at each other like, are you serious? And so the more we know, the better off I can build that report, build that interaction, build that trust. And I do want to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly for my customers. I can't improve unless I have customers who are honest with me and say, hey, here's a place where you need to brush up. Well, I'll give you another example of that is, is how, and unfortunately, this is a story I'm telling on myself, but uh, I think I've told it on the, on the show before, but one day we were waiting for one of our largest customers, this startup I was working with, we uh, were a mature startup at that point, but um, our largest customer to come in. And uh, so the CEO is coming with his entourage, and so we were all sort of you know, waiting at the, uh, the top of the stairs for him to, to show up. And he walks up, and the first thing he says is, after just saying hi, and he barely said hi, is he said, uh, where's Eileen? And we're like, Eileen? Eileen? He goes, yeah, I want to talk to Eileen. He said, you mean Eileen and customer service? Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So, follow us. So, we take him down the hallways and through the cubicles to get to Eileen's cubie. And he mm-hmm. turns to my boss, my C- the CEO of my company, and he says, See this woman here? She's why we buy from you. There you go. <laughs> and I was like, uh, you know, everybody's mouth is just sort of <laughs> open right at that point, right? Yeah. Because here's somebody who's buying millions of dollars a year of equipment and services from us. And yeah, we really didn't have a clue. Yeah. And, and that's a great point to say it's not price. It's not the best features and functions in your products. Who are the Eileen's in your organization? Yeah. And do they embody, and literally, Steve Cook talked about this once when he talked about Apple. He referenced, you know, something being in their DNA. Mm-hmm. And so, we have to take that approach with customer experience. Is it in the DNA of every employee to say, this is, when I walk through those doors each and every day, my focal point is to deliver this kind of experience and hear those things to say, this is why we buy your product. This is why. I, I talked to Marketing Profs uh, last month, and I said there are two brands which I am unapologetically like defenders of. One is Apple, yep. and the other, one, the other one is Subaru. And again, you could probably sit down with a PC and go a comparison to Apple. You could take an Audi and compare it to a Subaru Legacy. But it is the service. It is the promptness of attention. It is the fact that when I'm online or whether I'm on the phone or whether I'm at the dealership or whether I'm in the Apple store, they make me feel like I am their only priority. Even though there may be other customers around, when I am dealing with that individual, there's no distractions. There's no, hey, wait a minute, I got to go check uh, to make sure I can do this for you. It is, how can we help you? And they actually mean it. (laughs) And they actually come through for me each and every time. And those brands, they've endeared my loyalty and my advocacy and, and, dare I say, my defense 
of their brands. And that's the level we should get to. But it doesn't just happen. It has to be part of the DNA. And that's why I'm such a, uh, such a believer in enabling, equipping, and empowering for that customer experience. Okay. I love it. Well, Carlos, we've, uh, you've ended right on time. We're now out of time. But uh, great conversation. And hopefully people <laughs> take it to heart and uh, think about this idea of the customer experience and how important it is. And it's not just yeah trying to make your numbers and so on. It's, and we talk about looking at things through the buyer's eye and having empathy. But it's, it's the whole experience, not just the moment you're talking to them. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Andy. I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, it's been a pleasure. So before you go, tell folks how they can connect with you. Yeah, you can connect with me on Twitter. I'm at C.A. Hidalgo, H-I-D-A-L-G-O, or my email is carlos at vismcx, and that's V-I-S-U-M-C-X dot com. All right. And friends, thank you for spending this time with me today. Make sure you come back and join me for the next great episode of Accelerate. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.